Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Lizzie Burden. So, tax cuts, we're led to believe, are set to be the star of the show in tomorrow's autumn statement. At the beginning of the year, Rishi Sunak made five promises to voters, the biggest of which was to halve inflation. Speaking yesterday, the PM said that now that promise has been fulfilled, he set his sights on cutting taxes. The second decision that we're taking is to cut tax and reward hard work. Now, I want to cut taxes. I believe in cutting taxes. What clearer expression could there be of my governing philosophy than the belief that people, and not governments, make the best decisions about their money? But doing that responsibly is hard. We must avoid doing anything that puts at risk our progress in controlling inflation. And no matter how much we might want them to, history shows that tax cuts don't automatically pay for themselves. Well, in fact, on the morning broadcast round today, Laura Trott, the new Chief Treasury Secretary, was on the rounds saying, quote, we can now focus on going for growth, pushing up the growth rate of the economy and cutting taxes for individuals. So moving it on even more. The question is, what can the government afford? when and whether it will be inflationary. Meanwhile, the shadow business and trade secretary Jonathan Reynolds is keeping tight-lipped about Labour's own plans, its own approach to taxes. I asked him a question about the subject at yesterday's CBI conference and in fact he dodged it as well as the next three questions. So I reckon that this is the government spying an opportunity to drive a wedge issue here, to put pressure on Labour to say whether it would reverse the Tory tax cuts, because if Labour won't, it leaves less money for spending. And if it will, the Tories can say that Labour are the tax risers. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the pressure is on, no doubt, to cut taxes. And that's, you know, that's um, the issue that we've heard so much about, and including from the Adam Smith Institute, obviously supportive of free markets and neoliberal ideas. But James Price was speaking to me this morning, again, sort of emphasising the importance of encouraging productivity growth in order to then provide economic growth for the country. Have a listen. But I think it's really important that we realise that if we could get growth going again, and I know that's the, a cursed word since Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were briefly in power, but if we can get growth up again, that means more revenue to play with. And one way we can do that would be by increasing productivity. We've had a real productivity puzzle. Interesting that even the Adam Smith Institute's not entirely endorsing uh, tax cuts, of course, something that they've you know called for for, for many years. Look, I think the question is, is cutting taxes really the right way to get more growth? 
Bloomberg reports the government's also planning to toughen up rules around claiming welfare to encourage more people to take jobs. So I think that's something we're going to hear more about in tomorrow's budget. It'll be interesting to see the balance of emphasis at this mm. autumn statement, whether the rabbit out of the hat is more on this sense that people need to get on their bikes and back to work or whether it'll be about the retail offer of tax cuts. Yeah, I mean, tax cuts is the sexy bit, isn't it? It's it's the bit that the MPs are clamouring for. It's also a question of timing. And you mentioned the Adam Smith Institute. They do want the kind of uh, permanent business tax cut to, to be put in place. Um, but they are uh, concerned about the kind of productivity issue and how you how you get growth. But yes, I think balance of emphasis is absolutely right. How much of this is going to be about tax cuts, how much of it about getting people back to work. I think the problem for the government is that both of these things, going for growth, which you've heard so much about, and reforming welfare are both things that take a lot of time mm. and potentially actually cost quite a lot of money because welfare, you think, oh, that'll save a few quid, we'll cut benefits. But of course, reforming welfare properly and getting people back into work involves spending money on job centres, it involves retraining people. It's actually quite a, an expensive and complicated problem. So it's actually not a short-term way for the government to fix its finances. It's actually a longer-term thing. And of course, uh, something that the government knows it hasn't got is loads of time. They may uh, hope that they'll be in power in a year's time, but at the end of the day, they want to do some measures which are going to look attractive in in 12 months less than 12 months time well the other problem with trying to fix labor market inactivity is you don't really know what the problem is mm. the data are so bad and this is something that the bank of england's monetary policy committee members have been repeatedly complaining about whether you can actually trust the figures from the office for national statistics uh, whether it really is all about long-term sickness yeah and so you could end up treating the wrong problem with the wrong solution well i mean the issue is that you've got something like three million people you know um on benefits either for unemployment for disability for long-term sickness and you do have the figures in terms of how much it actually costs the government and it has soared to sort of close to what 26 billion dollars sorry 26 billion pounds this year so it is a huge cost and it is a huge number of people but as you say how to actually help those individuals very difficult and if you're targeting them while cutting inheritance tax which we know is another tax cut that has been at least considered that could have extremely difficult optics yeah very bad optics interesting as to whether uh, cutting welfare is is popular or not i think it's you mentioned the retail offer earlier i mean it, there is a retail element i think to cutting welfare because uh, a lot of people feel that there are people living in their area or they read about them in the papers that are not doing their bit and they're sitting on benefits so so th there is a certain section of the electorate for whom targeting welfare receives recipients is a, a, a popular measure of course it's not popular for millions of people who rely on on, on benefits so it is a, it's a tricky balance to, to to take and that's a section of the electorate that was perhaps slightly angered last week with the departure of suella braverman so they might want to appeal to them mm. this week so the chancellor jeremy hunt and the work and pension secretary mel stride unveiled last week a back to work plan so it's a package of employment focused support that's aimed at helping people to stay healthy according to the government get off benefits and move into work with the goal of improving the UK's productivity. So I suppose we wonder whether this could actually be a mainstay of the autumn statement tomorrow and perhaps emerge more clearly as an issue even than the tax cuts that we've been talking about for the last couple of days. So joining us now to discuss this firstly is Tony Wilson who is director of the Institute for Employment Studies, a think tank. Tony, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. 
Hi there, thanks for having me. What do you make of this back-to-work plan? It sounds fairly similar to a number of these sorts of projects. What, what do you think it's going to deliver? Well, I think you're right. I think this is, this is quite similar to a set of announcements that were made back in spring, in the spring budget. And so there's two parts to it, really. One is, is a continuation of that. So it's a bit more investment in some of the measures that were announced in the spring, particularly around um, trying to improve access to employment support for people with health conditions and help people who have poor health to stay in work. But the second part then is, uh, is a lot of rhetoric, a lot of quite divisive language around toughening up um, the conditionality, what we might call the conditionality regime, the, the conditions that benefit recipients have to follow and the sanctions when they don't when they don't comply. And so there's a bit of a balancing act here for the government. They're going very, very hard on the conditionality and sanctions messages at the moment. But actually, the kind of the real substance of the announcement, certainly in terms of spending commitments and potential impact, is more on the employment support side, the support for people with health conditions. And those two things don't always go that well together, to be honest. A tough language, tough rhetoric on sanctions and then you know, invitations to engage in voluntary employment support can often be quite hard to reconcile. Tony, how radical is the detail of this? Because we've heard about welfare reform from successive governments, haven't we, for, for, for decades rather than years. It seems like one of those kind of unfixable problems. Is, is, this, a, is this a big step or is, is some of this just puff? Um, I would say it's there actually there's quite a lot to it, you know. I mean it's quite a significant extension of investment. So look, we'll see tomorrow how much new money there is, because there's quite a lot of money was announced in the spring. Um but it looks like so for example, they're doubling the size of a program called Universal Support. It still won't be massive, it'll be helping around a hundred thousand people, disabled people a year when it's rolled out. It's a bit of a job yet to roll it out. It's quite a big extension of talking therapies, less of an employment intervention, but it's quite an important health intervention that can keep people with poor mental health, keep people well and, and, and help people in, in their recovery. And there's an extension of a programme called Restart, which is supporting a long-term unemployed, extending that by two years. Um, and so that's all welcome. Set against that, though, they're not extending a programme. They're ending a programme called the Work and Health Programme, which was a similar size to um, uh, universal support. So... You know, it's, it's good the government are investing in this, and I think they do, do deserve credit for it, because particularly with an election coming up, you know, they're, they're choosing to invest in programmes that are going to run on for, for two or three years, they're going to bridge into the next parliament. So, um, so it's, you know, it's positive that we're seeing this commitment to more employment support. On the other hand, though, like you say, we've been, we've been here before. I mean, this has been at least 20 years we've had a real focus on work and health. It sort of waxed and waned a bit, but Labour, the Labour government in the early 2000s were very focused on how we can improve access to employment support. And we haven't cracked it. You know, and in particular, we don't talk enough about how we can make workplaces better, how we can support employers better to make work protective of health. And we don't really talk enough about how we can get those interfaces between our health services, our employment system and workplace practice right as well. And we're still at the kind of testing phase on a lot of things there. And, we, you know, government has been very nervous about about committing too much on that. And I think there's a lot more we can do around how we improve, how we make mm. work better, how we encourage employers to work to work better, to, to support people in work and make work supportive of good health, as it is for most of us most of the time. Tony, there's been so much criticism around the labour market data, especially from the Office for National Statistics. Yeah. Is there a danger that it's the bad data leading to the wrong solutions? So there's certainly a risk of that. I think, though, in the in a big picture level, the, the, the data is OK, I think. So, you know, the ONS have identified they've got issues about response rates for particular groups, which may be affecting how they weight the data. 
the the um, the Bank of England though made an assessment that I think that um, they published this last month, the Monetary Policy Report. It's really worth looking at looking at the analysis they've done. Their assessment is this is probably means we've been overestimating employment by a fraction of a percentage point. We've been underestimating economic inactivity by a fraction of a percentage point. So big picture, probably not making a massive difference. But in in the detail, yeah, there might be some differences, particularly around age groups, potentially. And there may be some differences around the reasons why people are economically inactive or outside the labour force. But the underlying story of low participation in the UK, a very weak labour market recovery from COVID and, um, and a rising instance of ill health in the population. All mm. three of those things, I think, are true. And that will continue to be the case after the data is revised. Mm. The issue, though, also, um, surely with the kind of get back to work drive or increase your hours drive or, you know, come off long term benefits push is the fact that incapacity benefit has soared so much in terms of cost, yeah. you know, from something like 16 billion yeah. 2013 to 14, you know, this data to something like 26 billion this year. I mean, that is the pressure on the government, isn't it? I mean, you have to put that into context and surely that money can be better spent with sort of long term prevention measures or i mean how, how can they bring that bill down oh it's incredible no no it's, it's remarkable and i think there's a couple of things going on here one is you know our population is getting older and and this isn't just about aging but it's a, but it is a really important driver here once you're into your late 40s early 50s the likelihood of you of you um developing a long-term impairment or health condition increases the likelihood of you leaving work due to ill health increases Alongside that, though, we've also had a massive disruption of the pandemic. And we think actually a lot of that growth in people out of work with ill health is people who are already out of work, in effect, with health conditions that are getting worse or finding and or just finding it harder to get back into work. And that again, that that comes back to what I was saying earlier about challenges around workplace, around job design, around how we reach and engage people around employer practice. But the third part is, I mean, that frankly, the government has lost control of the benefit system during the pandemic. Um, they stopped doing face-to-face assessments of, um, of of people when they applied for health-related benefits, and we saw a really significant increase in um, in approval rates of people for those benefits. All of those people will have had really significant long-term health conditions, so this isn't about people gaming the system, but they just may not have been assessed as 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 being eligible for the highest rates of of health-related benefits. Now, retrospectively, we expect the government tomorrow to try to tighten up on this, to to change some descriptors, to make it harder to get on benefit and so on. And that is going to deliver quite significant savings. Um, Sorry, it's going to score quite significant savings. Whether they can deliver this, though, is another matter, because this has been a, you know, the, the government since... Actually, you know, for the last 15 years, I mean, starting with the end of the Labour government when some of these changes were introduced, you know, this has been a really sort of benighted like policy that just hasn't worked. I mean, it's, the, the assessment for health-related benefits has been going wrong for decades, and we do need to fix it in the next Parliament. Tony, you hinted at it there, but how much of this, how much of the labour market problems we're seeing, the number of people uh, out of work, uh, is pandemic-related, and how much of that has has unwound since the pandemic, or are we still stuck with a, a big problem because of that? period in history so the big underlying drivers aren't really pandemic related but the pandemic has definitely catalyzed them i mean the big changes that are driving this are our population getting older there's going to be about roughly two people of working age supporting every every person of pension age in a decade's time compared with roughly four people of working age for every person of pension age you go back a couple of decades you know and and actually it's now people moving 
into their 60s in the coming years it's it's the it's the generation x's the children of the baby boomers are now getting older um, and we and so we've got a, you know we've got a, these really significant demographic changes that is related to the health challenges we're facing and we're also you know we're, we're getting older because we're having fewer kids and, pe and young people are staying in education longer so we've had a really significant contraction in the youth labor force as well and then you add in the impacts of brexit which has led to lower migrate lower economic labor market migration and less free movement you know, all of these have combined to create really a, a, quite a bottleneck we think in the labor market we've had employment growth of 300,000 a year each and every year for the last two decades employment growth has driven economic growth we forecast over the next two years employment growth is going to more than half it's going to be barely 100,000 a year and almost all of that growth is going to be people aged over 50. Well, so this is the government policy, but what about Labour's policy? Because we had Jonathan Ashworth on the podcast when he was Shadow Work and Pension Secretary. He's out of that job now, but it seemed like Labour agreed welfare did need tweaking, even if they don't agree with this get-on-your-bike approach. What do you reckon? Well, I, so I think I don't think Labour will oppose um, explicitly oppose any of the changes that are being made now that, that affect the descriptors for the WCA, the uh, the assessment that's made for health benefits. That's where most of the fiscal savings will be. They certainly won't oppose the investment in additional employment support. I think in practice, though, what they will be thinking about for the next Parliament is how can they dial down some of the bureaucratic focus on conditionality and monitoring and sanctioning and change the emphasis more towards an employment service that is a public employment service that people can access that you can you know that you can go to for help and that, and that, and that people can trust and that it's more locally rooted so it'd be a change of emphasis i think rather mm. than necessarily a significant change in the kind of the, the actual kind of underlying wiring of the system i would say okay. though we sanction half a million people every year the, the, the street level bureaucracy and running a sanction system of that scale gets in the way of delivering effective employment support. And I do expect Labour will be looking quite closely at that. Tony Wilson, thank you so much for being with us, Director of the Institute for Employment Studies Think Tank. So interesting perspective then on what he thinks is actually a significant change likely to come in the autumn statement tomorrow. Yeah, massive changes in the labour market and some big changes to welfare uh, likely to be announced tomorrow. Well, let's get a view on whether all of this is going to work from Chris Thomas, head of the IPPR's Commission on Health and Prosperity. Chris, do you think the government's carrot and stick approach is, is, is going to be successful? Yeah, I think I think some some doubts around whether whether it will work. And I think, you know, there there are some good elements of the carrot that we've already heard about, in, including that um, there's uh, a focus on talking therapies, on uh, work coaching, on, on individual support. Um, but I think there are two big risks here. I think the first is that um, the stick approaches put into conflict the idea that people can trust the carrot right so engagement with the welfare system and the employment system might be weakened but i think most of all this package of policies strikes me as quite a reactive one um we have a rising tide of sickness in the uk that this is looking to me that tide is only going to grow in the next 10 to 15 years and beyond and these things uh, that are that are uh, coming forward in the autumn budget are only really mitigating some of the harm that that causes. They're not getting into what we really need to get into, which is prevention, which is the question, how do we keep the health of our population high and reduce the UK's very alarming levels of preventable sickness? Um, and if you don't do that, then what you're going to end up with is that this is a perpetual question at every single fiscal event um, mm. that isn't solved 
that is only really kind of managing it from one year to the next. We were just talking about the pandemic effects. I wonder how much an awareness of mental health issues is contributing to this because we have seen as a big part of long-term sickness arise in people taking time off work long periods because of depression for example or anxiety you're right that the mental health is is um is the most cited if we look at the uh the population that are economically inactive because of sickness or out, out of out of active work because of because of sickness mental health is is the most common um condition that's um reported it's just over six in ten of that group will report uh, a mental health condition of some kind. Um, and I think ultimately um, that, that, that should teach us two things. The first is that we probably have to reflect that our policies on preventing, uh, managing, supporting people with mental health conditions has been very poor. Um, there isn't very much kind of policy that's out there that prevents mental, illness, mental health problems or mental illness. Um, there's certainly not um, a, a parity of focus within things like the NHS between physical health conditions and mental health conditions. So that can lead to problems. Um, but the other thing that we should probably recognise is that when it comes to labour market impacts, it's actually not that common that it's just a mental health problem. It's actually often the case that people have a mental health condition and a physical health condition. It's often multiple conditions that are impacting people in tandem. Hmm. And that level of complexity is something that our employment uh, support systems and workplaces themselves are very poor at handling. So there's probably a big challenge there for how do we deal with the kind of new complexity of needs people have um, but, and put in place the But hang on, but does the Chancellor not have a point when there are nearly a million vacancies in the UK economy and three million people either on long-term sickness, disabled or long-term unemployed? I mean, surely there has to, you know, it's right to try to support them to get into meaningful work because work in and of itself, it, you know, many people would say supports people's mental and physical health too. So it's a sort of economic need, both at a macro, but also at an individual level. Yeah, I agree. I agree that um, that um, work is 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 good for, for health uh, in general. Um, I mean, one of the things that we do have to temper that link between work and good health with, though, is that inappropriate work or bad jobs are as harmful, if not more harmful to people's health than 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 having no job. And one of the things that our employment systems and support systems are, are incredibly bad at is putting, uh, uh, creating a pipeline of people with, uh, you know, kind of complicated health needs, maybe multiple health conditions into kinds of work that either aren't high quality types of work or either aren't inappropriate kinds of work. And I think that's part of the puzzle that we have to solve, right? It's that um, there's a the, if we want to in, uh, tap into the fact that work can be really good for our health over the long run, we need to make sure that that's the right kinds of work for the right kinds of people. And we're not very good at doing that at the moment. And where do job centres fit into that question? Because you mentioned in your response to this statement that you think the government should rethink the role of job centres. How would you make them work better? Because there's something which has been a lot of criticism over there in ineffectivity, in, in hasn't there? Yeah, I think that has. I think um, you know, there's there's uh, a big problem in terms of consent and trust with you know, kind of how job centres exist in local places. So uh, I think there's a kind of need to make sure that, that that they're embedded in that way. I think the other big move that I'd like to see is just far more coordination between. Um, given that we have this big problem that the Chancellor is trying to address of of long term sickness, and that's not going away, I think much more coordination between the role that job centres play and the role that the NHS plays, and integrated support between the two. 
it seems kind of alarming, doesn't it, that, um, that as this problem emerges, we have such big silos between what our general practitioners might be doing if, if, if we can get in to see them at all, what what what, what employment support is uh, and, and, and what's going on in job centres and what's otherwise happening in the NHS. So a big coordination between the two of those would be very welcome. And it probably takes a fairly big culture change in, in how job centres works to, to make that work, to align it with the kind of principles the NHS works on, which is uh, a kind of compassionate for the point of need support um, uh, based in community trust kind of mentality. So, Chris, we've got the autumn statement tomorrow. What are you expecting? What do you hope for on this issue? So on the expecting question, I think um, we will see uh, some good things around uh, giving, moving forward with some kinds of support on uh, on the health issue that, that that's keeping the Chancellor and senior Treasury officials up at night. So I think we'll see talking therapy support rolled out for people with mental health problems. I think we'll see a focus on some of the big uh, kind of economic health conditions, the ones that cause the most economic harm, which are things like arthritis, musculoskeletal conditions, cardiovascular disease. And I think we'll see some uh, stick policies, including that for some groups, um, there is uh, an indication that things like uh, pres- free prescription charges will be, will be uh, used as leverage, which I think is a worrying erosion of the kind of universality of, of our healthcare system. What I'd like to see, um, uh, and which we may not see, is uh, a much bigger understanding of this health issue as a long-term fiscal threat, as one of the biggest long-term fiscal threats the UK faces, uh, and a lot more prevention. Um, look, the government has done something quite good on things like um, smoking, right? But there are lots of things that at a fiscal event you could invest in that would really support public health, whether that's yeah. by challenging uh, and moving away from non-decent housing, whether that's obesity policy, whether that's addictions and alcohol. Okay. Um, I think that's going to be the missing ingredient. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. Chris Thomas, head of the Institute for Public Policy Research's Commission on Health and Prosperity. Looking ahead to tomorrow's autumn statement then, will there be uh, additional health measures from the Chancellor? What is going to be the balance of carrot and stick in terms of getting people back into employment or working more and can Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt make any dent in that 20 point poll lead that Labour has when this is one of the very few set pieces remaining before the general election well we finally get an end to all of that speculation tomorrow join us for live coverage of the Chancellor's autumn statement in Parliament we'll be here on Bloomberg Radio on DAB in London and on the internet with a special programme starting at 12pm That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and James Walcock and our audio engineer was Max Green. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.